word of prayer. Now, Father, again, we are thankful for Brother Knapp. We're thankful for his love for you. We're thankful for his dedication to your work and that he has followed you wherever you have led. And uh, some easy places, uh, some uh, rather difficult places. And I pray, Father, that we'd be blessed this evening, that we'd be challenged, that we would be helped and encouraged to, t- to stand for you, stand for truth, stand for right, stand for your word. And we'll praise you for what you do in uh, his life and ministry to us tonight. And in our lives, as we look to you, and even now as I pray, we pray, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Amen. And we'll thank you uh, for what you do in our life as we are obedient to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, Dr. Nat, my first question for you this evening would be a question. What would you consider your greatest legislative battle while you served there in Richmond? I think that uh, I would have to say the greatest battle I had, I would call the Jonah battle. That's a funny name to give to a legislative battle. But the reason I say that is because God put me in a different direction than I ever thought I would go. Began in 1981, I became the executive director of the Old Dominion Association of Church Schools, a group of about 20 Christian schools scattered across the state. Uh, They wanted somebody on a part-time basis, paid me $75 a week to organize their competitions and things like that. And I said, I'm going to do that as long as I didn't have to get involved in the legislative process. Uh, I'm very patriotic, but I just didn't know anything about it, and I really had no interest in that vein. They said, well, that's fine, because uh, Dr. Carl Bieber, who was the uh, principal down in Tabernacle in Virginia Beach under Dr. Rod Bell, uh, was very involved politically, and he would cover and continue to cover all the legislative issues. That was fine with me, and so I plowed into the uh, ODAC's uh, uh, curriculum and things that needed to be done, and I was sitting in my office. I was also principal of Great Hope Baptist School in Chesapeake under Dr. John Halsey. So it was just a part-time job. So I was in my office one day, and my wife, who is my secretary, uh, she buzzed in tomorrow. She said, there's a man on the phone from Richmond who wants to talk to you. I said, okay. So I picked up the phone and said, hello, this is Jack Knapp. And he said, uh, uh, I'm Delegate Buster O'Brien from Virginia Beach. And uh, something going on here in Richmond I think you'll be interested in. I said, well, I doubt it, but I'll be glad to listen. Uh, He said, uh, 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 then-Senator Doug Wilder has introduced legislation that if it's passed in its current form, will close every private school in Virginia, including all your Christian schools. I said, you've got my attention. (laughs) Raised the hair on the back of my neck, obviously not on the top of my head. And uh, uh, and uh, he said the bill has already passed the Senate floor, the Senate uh, uh, committee on education has uh, finance, excuse me, has passed the Senate floor and is now before the House committee on finance. And uh, of course, it just got that. And and the governor has already said he'll sign the bill. I said, well, you've got my attention. So I drove to Richmond the next day, and I started meeting with the 20 members on the House Finance Committee. 
And most of them that I talked to said, Jack, we're opposed to this bill. It's a wrong-headed bill. It should not pass. But it's being painted as a racist bill, and everybody is afraid to vote against it. One of the senior members of the committee said to me, Jack, what we need is some black pastor to come up here to Richmond and say, if you pass this bill, you close my Christian school. Who's in control? All right. A year earlier, Dr. Jim Earls. I don't know if any of you know. You know Dr. Earls. Any of you know Dr. Earls from Chesapeake? Someone's shaking heads. Year before, Dr. Earls had come to me. He was only about 20 miles from us. He said, Jack, I want to start a Christian school, and we helped him get it started. Black pastor from Chesapeake, black administrator. Uh, Dr. Earls does not like the term African-American. He said, I'm an American. I just happen to be a black American. And he said, I'm a full-blooded American. But anyway, uh, faculty, students, were almost all uh, black. And I said, Jim, here's what's going on. He said, wow. I said, what I need, I need you to come to Richmond and testify before the committee tomorrow. We're in the last week of the session. In fact, it, officially it's supposed to end tomorrow, Saturday, was the day it was supposed to end. He said, Jack, I'll be glad to come, but he said, I haven't any idea what to say. I said, well, I've got some ideas. The committee's going to meet tomorrow at uh, 11 o'clock. Would you meet me at 10 on the Capitol lawn, and we'll go over some things you can say? He said, fine. Well, I arrived at the Capitol the next morning and found out they had moved the meeting to 10 o'clock instead of 11. Well, I'm in a panic. There's no cell phones at that day, and they still had, they had taken the crank off the side of the phone, but there were no cell phones. But anyway, uh, 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 Jim arrived a few minutes before 10, praise the Lord. We sat on the lawn. I gave him two or three things to say. He said, Jack, these make sense to me, and I can, I can honestly say them and, and, uh, and go through that. He said, um, I said, now, Jim, listen, I can't be seen with you. Not that you'll contaminate me, but I'll contaminate you because everybody up here knows I'm leading the charge against this legislation and if they see me with you, uh, you're going, your testimony is going to be damaged already. What I want you to do is go down front and sit with Bud Calvert, Dr. Bud Calvert from Fairfax, and Dr. Wayne Thompson from Ingleside. Those were the two pastors, the lead pastors uh, uh, with ODAX, and they were going to be speaking against the bill. And sit with them down front, and I'm going to hide behind a post in the committee room. It was a rather large committee room. There were some pillars in there that I could kind of sat behind and kind of peek around and see what was going on. So Dr. Earls went down front and sat with those men, and Doug Wilder came in, and Senator Wilder, and he presented the bill, and, and, uh, and they asked for com- people to testify uh, before, uh, for and against, and uh, Dr. Thompson and Dr. Calvert and spoke, and the last one to speak was Jim Earls. He did an eloquent job. He said, folks, I have a Christian school, and quite frankly, the kids who are in my school, if they don't get an education there, they will not get an education at all. And if you follow through with this bill, you're going to destroy their opportunity to get an education at all. And he did an eloquent job. Well, when he got through, of course, always the sponsoring senator or delegate has the last opportunity. 
And Senator Doug Wilder got up and he was furious. He was so angry that the, the, the color was, of his skin was actually changing. He, he was such, in such a, a fitful rage. And he said, you know what they've done? They've gone and found them one. And he was accusing Jim Earls of being an Uncle Tom or worse. And, uh, and I, I, I began to, because I'd never seen him uh, in, in, in a rage like that, and I was really a little bit surprised. And, uh, and, and I looked around the corner, and I noticed that the uh, legislators were just being turned off by this tirade against uh, Jim Earls. And, uh, uh, and so I thought, wow, that, that, that doesn't look good for the Senator Wilder. Well, after he got through, he sat down, and they took the vote. Two members of the 20-member committee were not there. The vote was 11 voted no, two were absent, and seven voted yes. So the bill was killed. I said, man, praise the Lord. I said, my first legislative battle, and I won. So I called my wife at home, and I drove home two, two hours to Chesapeake. That time we were living in Chesapeake. Drove home. And I, I said to my wife when I called her, I said, kill the fatted calf. <laughs> I'm coming home to victory. <clears throat> so I got, I got home and I pulled in the yard and my wife met me at the door. <clears throat> I could tell by the look on her face that, that something wasn't quite right. And she said, Jack, she said, they've just called from Richmond. They need you back there. I said, why? She said, they've resurrected the bill. I said, what? I said, I just watched them kill it 11 to 7 with two absent. She said, I don't know what's going on. She said, call Richmond. So I called Buster O'Brien's office. And he said, Jack, we didn't understand the legislative process. That was really my first exposure to it even. I didn't understand the process. But one of the rules of the legislature is if two members on the prevailing side of a bill change their position, they can ask for a revote, a committee revote. Then Governor Doug Wilder had called in the 11 who voted against it one by one until he found two who would change their vote. Buster O'Brien says, Jack, you've got to get back up here. He said, you're the only one who is really opposing this bill. And if you're not here, this bill is going to pass. He said, they're going to the committee's going to meet again in about an hour when we recess. I said, Delegate O'Brien, I can't be back there in an hour. I live two hours from, from Richmond. He said, get up here. I said, I'll do the best I can. Well, as soon as I got off the phone, I called Dr. Jim Sumter at Landmark Baptist Church, just outside of Richmond. I said, Dr. Sumter, you got to go down to the Capitol and testify against that bill. He said, Jack, I can't do that. I don't know the arguments. You're the one who's been working this bill. He said, I'll buy you an airplane to get up here. I called the Norfolk Airport. There was no plane that would take me. So I called Dr. Sumter back. I said, Dr. Sumter, you've got to go down there and do something to keep them from meeting until I can get there. I'll get there as quick as I can. <clears throat> and I, I didn't know what he did till later, but I'll tell you what he did. He went down there. He took some of his staff and he told one of his staff members, you go up in the gallery. They have a gallery around up there. If you've been in the house, you know there's a gallery there. He said, if they start to adjourn before Dr. Knapp gets here, he said, jump off the gallery or something to, to, to create a stir so, so they won't, they won't leave. And he said, and I'll, I'll stand at the door. He said, I'll pray that the door won't open so they can't get out to go to their committee meeting. I didn't know he did all that until later. 
Well, at that time, we had a 1973 Ford Thunderbird. It had 460 under the hood. That car would fly with or without wings. Didn't make any difference to it. I did something I have never done before. And excuse me, Mr. Policeman. I have done something I never did before and never done since. I prayed, Lord, don't let there be a trooper between here and Richmond. I will not tell you how fast I drove. It was a little bit over 55. I'll just put it that way. That was the speed limit at that time. I made it to Richmond quite quickly. And a second thing, and by the way, I didn't see a policeman. And I have driven that route hundreds of times, literally, literally. And I have never driven from Chesapeake to Richmond and not seen at least one uh, trooper. Never. But I didn't that trip. I pulled in front of the Capitol, and guess what I found? A parking place. I defy you to go to Richmond during the session and find a parking place across the street from the Capitol. It can't happen. I don't, I think God reached down and picked that car up and moved it. I imagine when the guy came out and tried to find his car, he wondered who had taken it. I pulled in, I stopped my car, I ran across the street, I ran upstairs to the second floor where the General Assembly was meeting, and they were opening the door, they had just recessed for that committee to go into into meeting. Dr. Sumter was standing there wiping his brow uh, with sweat standing on it. The first person, the first delegate out was Archibald Campbell, the chairman of that committee. The man I, one of the men I had been working with, he said, Jack, the governor has said this bill must pass. He said, what amendments can we put on the bill to make it better? I said, Go, uh, Chairman Campbell, I said, you can't make poison good, but here's a couple of amendments that might water it down some. He took these, and every committee has a legal counsel. This is a, a an attorney a legislative attorney whose job is to make sure that any amendments that are offered are properly worded or are consistent with uh, other laws and so on. And so he handed those uh, to her. And quite a, there are a number of them who are women. And he handed her, and she looked them over, and she said, the governor won't like these amendments. Mr. Campbell said to, said to her, I don't care what the governor... And by the way, they were with the same party. They weren't parties opposite. They were the same party. He said, I don't care what the governor wants. This man has worked hard on this bill. And if he wants these amendments, he can have them. Chairman Campbell did something else. He said, the committee will not vote unless all 20 members are there. So they had a small room they were going to meet in. Now, this was the hottest issue that year. Television cameras were there. News reporters were there. It was, it was, it was in March, but it was, I mean, yeah, it was early in March, but it was hot. Just one of those freaky days, so the windows were open, the air conditioning, they didn't have air conditioning in that room. Anyway, I mean, it was, it was, of course, they could smoke yet. I mean, the, the, the room was just filled with smoke. And, uh, and finally, they got all 20 members together. And of course, the two men who had agreed to change their vote, and we should now lose, uh, uh, 11 to 9, because all 20 would be there. 
And the two men who, who changed their vote, uh, one made the motion, the other seconded, and the bill was brought back. Mr. Campbell, the chairman, said, call for the roll, and it's a roll call vote. Each delegate had to speak out loud. I, nay, I, nay, so I went around the room. When they got all done, one member uh, who had voted against us in the morning, because of all the pressure that the governor had put on these 11 men, became so upset with the governor, same same party, they're both from the same party, that he changed his vote. So when the vote came through, it was 10 yes and 10 no. Well, that was a tie, and because it was a tie, it could not pass. Wow. Then they told me, they said, the bill cannot pass because it had been voted on twice. Well, I didn't believe them. And, uh, and so I would not leave until they adjourned. That was the last day, and they were going to adjourn that day. I stayed around for hours making sure that bill was not going to be brought up again. And late at night, uh, in fact, we did, they didn't adjourn until 5 o'clock the next morning. Uh, uh, late at night, I was out on the south portico. That's the one with all the steps that faces the James River. And, of course, the, all the del- they had had a recess and all the delegates were out there smoking and everything else that they were doing. And I was out there talking to some of them. And one of the delegates came to me and said, Jack, he said, do you know that black preacher that spoke to us today? I said, I sure do, a personal friend. He said, will you do me a favor? I said, I will if I can. He said, would you apologize to him for me for how he was treated today? He said, I've been a delegate for 20 years, and I've never seen a man treated the way he was today. Well, I, of course, shared that with Dr. Earls, and of course he was glad to receive the apology. But the bill was not brought up again because by house rules it could not be. And that bill died that day, and God preserved our Christian schools and, of course, the non-public schools in Virginia because of that. And that was, I call that my Jonah bill because I didn't want to get involved in the legislature, but God used that to redirect my focus. And years later, I became the uh, executive director of the two organizations. I worked for both of them for about 18 years and then finally became executive director of just the VAIB for the last uh, another dozen years or so. But that was my Jonah bill. I love Brother Earls. He is a, a staunch defender of the oh, faith, man, without a doubt, unapologetically. Yeah. Of all the legislative battles that you have fought, which one would you say was the strangest or the oddest one? I think that that would have to be um, uh, the, uh, one of the tax bills. I told you in Sunday school this morning that it, the tax issue for churches was a 30-year battle. And uh, about our second or third uh, crack at trying to straighten that bill out, uh, we got the new regulations out. And I told you in Sunday school that uh, the bill would pass and then the, the bill would be turned over to the Department of Tax and then they would write regulations. It takes about two years to get the regulations written. And that particular year when the regulations came out, they were really strange. Uh, the, the, here's what the regulations said. Food baskets. A lot of churches give food baskets on Thanksgiving, Christmas. A food basket that was picked up at the church was tax exempt. But if the food basket was delivered to the home, you had to pay tax on it. You know, like I said this morning, I said, laws don't have to make sense 
They just have to get 51 votes. And that was one of my, uh, man, uh, they, um, uh, bulletins, you, you print you know, a church bulletin. Uh, church bulletins or newspapers that were printed in the church were tax exempt. If they were printed by minute print or somebody outside, you had to pay tax on it. But that wasn't all. The, the last one was even better. The baptismal font, you know what a baptismal font is? That's that little bowl they have in Episcopal churches and Catholic churches. I've always wanted to see them baptize a 200-pound man in one of those. But any, anyway, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that. Anyway, uh, a baptismal font was tax-exempt, but a baptistry was not. Yeah, that's what I said. What's going on? Well, by this time, I had worked with a number of the legislators long enough that I had built a relationship with them. And one of the men that I had built a good relationship, his name was Ted Morrison, and he was chairman at that time of the House Finance Committee. And that's where that, that's, uh, that's the man I really need to talk to. I said to Ted, I said, Ted, this, this, none of this makes any sense to me. He read it over and he said, Jack, you're exactly right. He said, he said, I'll tell you what to do. I will put in a bill to straighten that out. Now, that is really a coup because when the chairman of a committee puts in a bill, nobody in the, in the, on the committee is going to vote about it, vote against it, unless he gives a lot of thought to it because the chairman has a lot of power. He can pocket veto your bill, and I've seen him do it. I remember one time a freshman put in a bill and the chairman didn't like it. And, and, I, and I heard the freshman say, because it was the last day that committee was going to meet, and the freshman went to the chairman and said, uh, what happened to my bill? And the, and the chairman said, oh, it's safe. <laughs> he'd, he'd put it in his pocket, and it wasn't going to be heard because he didn't like the bill. And so I, I said, man, that's great. So Ted Morrison put in the bill, and man, it flew through the House committee. It flew through the House floor, and it disappeared. When it was voted to the House Committee, uh, it took on a life of its own. It became known as the Knapp Swimming Pool Bill uh, they, uh, uh, because it was a baptistry. And I said, I don't care what you call it. Just pass it, you know. Uh, and, and by the way, Ted Morrison was an Episcopalian, and they used those little baptismal fonts. And, and one of my arguments was, Ted, our baptistry is as much a part of our, witness, our, our worship as your baptismal font is of yours. And he said, Jack, I agree with you. And that's why I'm willing to sponsor this bill. Well, I met Ted in the lawn one day, and I said, going between the Capitol and the General Assembly bill, and I said, Ted, what in the world happened to the baptistry bill? It's gone. That's, that's what I always called it, even though it had the other things involved in it. He said, oh, Jack, he said, you won't believe what happened. He said, you know, Ed Willie, of course I do, Ed Willie was the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. He said, Ed Willie has gotten all upset with me because of something I did to one of his bills. So he has told the Senate Finance Committee that none of my bills can be passed this year. So they play little games back and forth between them. He said, but don't worry, he said, we'll work out something. About that time, Senator Bobby Scott who is now a congressman here in, in D.C., uh, came walking out of the Capitol and, and uh, Ted Morrison said, Hey, Bobby, Bobby, come here a minute. Come here a minute. Bobby walked over and he said, Hey, Bobby, he said, 
Reverend Knapp here has got a little old baptistry bill. It doesn't amount to anything. It's not going to affect the church, the, the state budget or anything. He said, uh, it, it needs to be passed. He said, but you know, Ed Willie has sent down word that none of my bills can be passed. He said, I've got your food stamp bill in my house committee. He said, would you mind if I put uh, uh, Reverend Knapp's baptistry bill on your food stamp bill? And uh, Bobby thought for a few minutes and said, I don't see any problem with that. Now, state legislature is a lot different than the federal. The state law, the state rules say that a bill can only have one purpose. In other words, you cannot uh, put things on a, on a bill that are not related. But see, these were both tax issues. So they, so they could be amended. So Ted Morrison put the uh, amendment on. Now the process changes. Nor, the normal process is House committee, House floor, Senate committee, Senate floor, signature by the governor. That's the normal process. But when a Senate bill comes over to the House and is amended by the House, it then has to go back to the Senate but it does not go through the committee. It goes directly to the floor. So Senator Willie could not get his hands on that amended bill. So it passed the House committee and the House floor. And it went back to the Senate floor. Now it's going to be voted on with the baptistry amendment on it. On the Senate floor. I wish you could have been there that day. It was really something. Senator Scott, of course, got up to introduce his bill. And he said, I have before you my annual food stamp bill. He said, and it's been amended with a little old baptistry bill on it. I hope you'll pass it as amended. And it did. And our baptistry and our food baskets became tax exempt. But that's the case of the disappearing bill. Well, uh, for our young people's sake, we're very glad we don't have to pay, charge them a tax when they're getting baptized. <laughs> uh, would you share something unusual, maybe, that you learned in your 30 years down there in Richmond serving us and serving the churches and serving the Lord? What would you say would be a valuable learning experience? Well, I don't know how valuable it would be, but one thing was, what to me was very humorous. Um, the, the legislature... Every other year meets for 45 days and then every other year for 60 days. And they must adjourn by midnight on the last day. They must. And uh, so in the old days, before the days of computer, if they came up to midnight and they were not ready to adjourn, they'd just send somebody up and they'd unplug the clock. <laughs> so they could go ahead and finish uh, what they were doing. Well... Uh, <laughs> Uh, when the computers came in and all the clocks were tied into computers and everything and, and they, they didn't know what to do about it. And so I remember one year, uh, the budget, uh, was not finished and, and it couldn't be finished because it takes so many hours to print it. And, and they were supposed to adjourn at Saturday night and the budget wasn't going to actually be printed in before them before Sunday sometime. So on Sunday afternoon, on Saturday afternoon, the speaker was uh, Moss from Norfolk. He got up and he said, uh, 
we are going to recess. And they kind of looked at him kind of funny. He said, because the budget's not ready and will not be ready till Sunday or Monday. I forget which day it was. And, but anyway, they came back, and so we'll call this Saturday the 10th, just to give it an identification. They came back on Monday, and he said, remember that this is Saturday the 10th because we recessed, we did not adjourn. <laughs> and so they took up the budget and, uh, uh, and passed it, and then when they got through, he said, and now we're adjourning signy die, and now it's Monday. So they, uh, that was to me was, was the, the, the height of manipulation. Another one was all, was, was not, did not have the humor with it, but it was interesting to me because I realized with the passage of that bill, this bill I'm going to tell you about now, that every single word is very important. I got a call from Jim Histon. He was the uh, uh, financial man over at uh, Fairfax Baptist Temple one day. And he said to me, Jack, he said, I got a, a weird situation. I don't know what to do with it. I said, what's that? He said, I can go down and buy a school bus in the name of the church and it's tax exempt. I can buy a van in the name of the church and it's tax exempt. But if I go, if we go and buy a car, for the pastor to use in the ministry, we have to pay sales and use tax on it. I said, I know nothing about it. I said, but I'll see what I can do. So again, I went back to Ted Morrison, my friend who got the, bat, the Knapp swimming pool bill passed. I said, uh, Ted, here's what's going on. He said, Jack, he said, I, I don't know about that particular quirk in the law. He said, but I'll look into it. A few days later, he called me and he said, Jack, here's the problem. He said, the law is very specific. For a church vehicle to be tax exempt, it must, first of all, carry a minimum of 10 passengers. And secondly, it must be used exclusively for church use. He said, now the easiest way to solve your problem is for your churches to buy a limousine for the pastor. I said, I said, Ted, you don't know Baptist churches. I don't think that'll go over a big. <laughs> he said, but he said, even then, you'd still have a problem. I said, what do you mean? He said, okay, uh, the pastor's got his limousine at the, at the church, and the missus calls up, Carol calls, and says, Pastor, stop by 7-Eleven, pick me up a loaf of bread, a rod of bread. <clears throat> he would have to take the limousine home, park it, get the personal car, go back and get the loaf of bread. He said, that, none of that makes any sense. He said, I think we can fix this problem. Number one, it'll be easy to strike the 10. And then the legislature, when we pass legislation, every word is, in, is to be what is, is normal, accepted word, the definition. If there are words that need special attention or special um, interpretation, then we have a section at the front of it and we say, for the purpose of this bill, this word means us and so. So instead of saying, when we'll, we'll say exclusively in this bill means predominantly. 
And so they struck the ten, and they uh, put in the definition section, exclusively means predominantly, so the pastor could stop by and pick up a loaf of bread. That passed the House that way, and it went over to the Senate, and the Senate said that's kind of cumbersome, so they struck the definition section entirely and just changed exclusively to predominantly, so the pastor can take a a church-owned automobile, drive it all the time, and can stop by and pick up a loaf of bread and bring it home. So you won't go hungry, Carol. <laughs> okay. She would never ask me to do that. <laughs> she, she, <laughs> All right. Uh, that, I, I don't do well with grocery stores. Anyway, you became the executive director in 1984. Yes. And so what was your biggest surprise uh, taking that, that position? That's an easy one to tell you. I told you in, in church this morning about the daycare case. Uh, VAIB, four churches said, we will represent the churches in Virginia and we will uh, 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 represent the churches in this case. We have to have somebody to represent. These four churches agreed to do that. Well, the attorney's fees were, were mounting. And they came to VAIB and said, would you help us? Would you pay that bill? When I became the executive director of VAIB, this case was well into the courts already. And the moderator came to me and said, oh, by the way, Jack, here's a bill for $250,000 you have to pay. I didn't quite have that in my checking account. And, uh, and the only preacher I knew who might have it was uh, Brother Bishop. Uh, but, it, but anyway, I didn't know any preacher who'd have that kind of money. And so I said, okay. We'll, I said, God will have to take care of this. And so... We began trying to figure out how uh, to pay this $250,000 bill. And Dr. Wayne Thompson came to me, and he'd had two paintings done. The one we saw this morning, actually he had about 10 or 12 done, but the one we saw this morning had another one of John uh, Weatherford preaching out of the Chesterfield County Jail. He said, Jack, I will get those reprinted, and uh, and you can have the reprints, and you can give them to any church that will give $500 toward the Freedom Fund. That's a special fund we set up to pay that bill. And so I began going church to church and say, and telling about the case and how God had worked and everything and said, will you help us? And, uh, and uh, churches all over Virginia uh, gave and helped support, and little by little the money came in. I was in uh, uh, one church, and I don't know if you know this brother, Billy Bowler. Do you know him? Okay. Uh, Billy Bowler uh, is, uh, you go to nowhere and turn left, and his church about three three blocks down the road. Anyway, uh, uh, he invited me to come and preach, and I, I went to the church, and it was a double wide out in the country. And uh, I walked in, he was there in shirt sleeves chasing wasps around the church, uh, trying to kill him, and... And uh, uh, the service opened. There were ten people, counting Judy and me. And I did something I never should have done. I said, Lord, what am I doing here? God has a way of putting you in your place. I presented in Sunday school. Morning service began. The congregation doubled. We had 20 people now. And I presented the case 
for raising the money. I sat down in the front pews. Billy got up in the pulpit. He said, we're not a big church. But he said, you know, if every member of this church would give up one cup of coffee a week, we could raise $500 in a year. That'd be $50 from 10 people. There was a very well-dressed black lady in the back of the congregation. She stood up and she said, I'm not a member of this church, but I'll give $50. Billy said, how many others will give up a cup of coffee a week? I left that church that morning with $250 in my pocket and a promise for 250 more before the year was out and tears running down my face and God had rebuked me. I took that story to every church after that. I said, if that church of 20 can give $500, so can you. And little by little, that money came in. Months went by. I got a telephone call from our attorney. He said, Jack, we've won the daycare case for you. You still owe over $100,000. We want to get that off our books. He said, if you'll pay that off in a year, we will tithe our attorney's fees, which would have been about $10,000. In a year, we had the money to pay it all off. And my wife made up a very nice, she went down to Williamsburg and got one of those uh, special papers and she typed up like a mortgage on it. And I asked Billy Bowler to come to the platform and we burned the mortgage. And Billy was there to help with that. And uh, we only had two large gifts. A man from North Carolina gave us $25,000. And the attorneys gave us $10,000. And God paid that off in a year. It was really it was really something while the Lord worked. Now, I understand that originally it was $500 for those prints. Yes, it but was. But that anybody in the room, there's still some available. And if they want them for $20, $20 they can still get them. Is that yes, true? Yes, they can. Yes. Yes, okay. they still can. So if you're interested in that, see me, and I'll be glad to give you that information. Yep. What words of wisdom can you give us for dealing with our legislatures? I think that I, w- I would urge you to pray for them, of course, but I think in contacting them, there's some things you need to remember. Virginia legislature legislators are paid very little. Uh, I think the House of Delegates gets about $18,000 a year, and the senators, I think, might get twenty. dollars uh, And they really work hard. I, I, I was really uh, impressed uh, with the amount of work they do. I sat in meetings till 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning on more than one occasion. And uh, I, would, I would be there when they opened the doors and I, I would be the last one to leave. I wanted them there to know that somebody's watching what they were doing. In fact, one time I was in a committee room and, and the chairman said to me, Nap, what are you doing here? I said, I'm here because you're here. Because I've seen them kill a bill and then after all the people who were opposed to it, bring it back and vote it, vote it on for it. And I, I just, and, but they do work hard. But I think 
I have a little acronym I, I, I've shared with, uh, with school groups and so on, a way to contact your legislators. It's called KISS. Now, I don't want you to go around kissing your legislators, but it's an acronym. K, be kind. Thank them for what they're doing. Hey, you may disagree with them on everything, but they are, by the word of the God, they are God's servants. So thank them for what they're doing. Secondly, instruct them, I, in what you want them to do. S, keep it single and simple. Talk about one thing. There's no point in putting a litany of 30 things together and writing a 30-page letter. It's not going to do any good. And last, keep it short. And you might find this crazy, but the letter that gets the most attention is the handwritten letter because it cannot be generated off a computer. And that is the letter that gets most attention. Now, I can't write a handwritten letter because if I did, they couldn't read it. I can't read it after I wrote it. So, but they... That is so very important. So those are the things. Be kind, uh, instruct, uh, be short, and, uh, and, and be simple. Wow. That's, that's pretty incredible. Thank you for that wisdom. Uh, tell me, uh, the last question of the night, uh, what, who had the greatest impact on your life other than the Lord Jesus Christ? I've had the privilege of working with over 300 legislators, I've had the privilege of working with close to 500 pastors in those 30 years. And every one of them had an impact in my life that I had personal contact with one way or another. But to tell you who had the biggest impact in my life, there are four people. Before I tell you, though, I want to, to, I'm going to turn to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, because you know, Paul and Timothy were a pair. And you think about how much impact Paul had on Timothy's life. But you know, Paul recognized there were people who had a greater impact on Timothy's life than he did. And in first, in 2 Timothy 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, said to Timothy, my dearly beloved, I thank God for you in verse 3. And then he said, I greatly desire to see thee. And then in verse 5, he said, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice. Those two women had the greatest impact in Timothy's life. Most of you do not know the history of my life, but the day I was born... August 6, 1940. Yes, I'm 83. My mother died from childbirth and malnutrition. My father was an alcoholic, and she did not have food to eat. She had a 10-year-old son, a 2-year-old son, and me. Her name was Ellen Wilhelmina Hamilton. the mother who gave me my life. As my father was about to die and I went to witness to him again, he was in a tar paper shack in Michigan. 
not far from Kalamazoo. He raised up on his elbow. This was not the first time I'd witnessed to him. And he called me by my real name. My real name is Frank. He said, Frank, the trouble with you is you're just like your mother. You're too religious. And he turned and faced the wall and he would not talk to me again. He didn't mean to, but he gave me hope that I may see the woman who gave me my life when I get to heaven. Her mother was a Christian. Her mother gave me my first Bible. Mother number two, her name was Una Knapp. Una and Cecil Knapp. Her brother lived around the corner from my father. And when I was born, her brother came to my father and said, Ed, what are you going to do with that baby? My father said, I don't know what to do with him. I've got a neighbor caring for him now. My 10-year-old boy is old enough to take care of himself. My 2-year-old can play in a sand pile while I build houses, but I don't want to do with the baby. The neighbor said, my sister wants a baby. If she wants him, she can have him. They shook hands, and I was given to the naps. He asked two things. Don't change his name and don't adopt him. Now what I tell you, Mrs. Knapp told me, the lady I called mother. She said, we went to see you. You were a sight to behold. You were bald. That never changed. <laughs> she said, and you were not a healthy baby. You had rickets and other problems. But we love you, and we took you home. Wonderful Christian lady. I was, had the privilege of being raised along with four sisters in the Knapp home. And I won't tell you all the story. But she is the mother who gave me my Lord. She led me to the Lord. I don't know that she actually did, did, you know, knelt with me, but she was the one who pointed me to the Lord. The third mother, her name was Georgia Zerbel. They moved from California to a little country, uh, two miles from a little country church, where as a high school senior, I was the song leader. The preacher there went down and led the whole family to the Lord. There were six children, five still at home, led mom and dad and the children that were home to the Lord. And I can still remember the first Sunday they walked into church, mom, dad, and four of the kids that were still living at home. They, of course, filled up half the church. That's how how small the church was. I looked down and I said, I want to meet that young lady. And Mom Zerbel is the one who gave me my wife. And uh, uh, Judy was special to me. And, uh, and the fourth mother who affected my life was, of course, Judy, the mother who gave me my children. I tell everybody she was my California wife. She moved from California to buy that Michigan dairy farm and the Lord brought her there so she could get saved and and become my wife. If you don't think she was important to me, I'll tell you how Walt Coles introduced me at the annual meeting one year. You know Walt Coles. And uh, my wife asked him to introduce me one year and he did. He got up and he said, you know, I cannot think of Brother Knapp without thinking of Sister Judy. You know, She's his right hand. He hesitated for a minute. Then he said, she's more than that. 
She's his left arm too. And his right leg and his left leg. He said, you know what? Without her, he ain't much. And you know, everybody laughed, but that's true. And those four women had the greatest impact on this preacher's life. Thank you very much. You bow your heads and close your eyes. Tonight you're here and you'd say, Pastor, wow, I'm not thankful like I ought to be. I've got a mom, I've got a dad, I've got a heritage. I certainly haven't been through the battles or the difficulties that Brother Knapp has been through, and I have, I have not been thankful in this Thanksgiving season. I, I want to practice being more thankful, and God has spoken to my heart about my thankfulness. And you say, Pastor, would you pray for me, and I'll pray for you this evening, Pastor. Speak. God spoke to my heart. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Wonderful. Good. Some of our young people. Wonderful. Young people, you should go up to your mom and dad and tell them you love them tonight. Have a wonderful gift and a mom and dad. With every head bowed and every eye closed, you're here tonight, but you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. God loves you. He wants to put his arms around you. Say, Pastor. I don't know Christ. God is speaking to my heart. Would you pray for me? Slip your hand up and hold it up for just a moment. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, I thank you for this time of invitation. We have some folks in the room they want to be more thankful. Some folks in the room that ought to put their arms around mom and dad tonight. Say thank you for giving me life. Thank you for not giving up on me. Thank you for being in my life. Thank you for bringing me to church, introducing me to Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you do a work at the altar tonight as our folks express their thanks to you and to others. As we pray tonight in Christ's name. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed, the altar is open. God has spoken, will you come? Will you come?